But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome to the Sex and Murder podcast. This one is going to be a little bit longer than our typical series. Normally, they're at the most two parts. This is going to be at least a three-parter, if not more, depending on the types of characters I want to get into and all that sort of stuff. Total disclosure, I haven't actually finished all the script yet, so it's a mystery to me as well. What are we talking about today? Well, what we're talking about is part of the greatest crime wave that America had ever seen. That's right, we're focusing on the 1930s. See, the 1930s saw the rise of Don Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, and the Barker Boys. Perhaps more known to the general public than these were two kids, Bonnie and Clyde. Their story over the years has been sensationalized and exaggerated. The 1967 film, a perfect example of that. While there's small beats that the film gets right, the portrayal of Bonnie and Clyde is certainly a movie version of them. In reality, they were inept robbers. John Dillinger called them spoiled punks, and Pretty Boy Floyd wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. Thing is, they were kind of right, as we will get into. So how about we do that? We'll look at the story of Bonnie and Clyde. But before starting, we'll name sources. The two main sources are Jeff Gwynn's Go Down Together, the true untold story of Bonnie and Clyde, as well as John Bosonecker's Texas Ranger, the epic life of Frank Hamer, the man who killed Bonnie and Clyde. Now, on to the story. Clyde Barrow was born to Henry and Cumie Barrow in 1910 and was the middle of seven kids, Elvin, Artie, Ivan, Nell, Clyde, Elsie, and Marie. All the kids had nicknames, but the only ones we really need to take note of is Ivan's, and his nickname was Buck, because he went by that his entire life. Clyde's nickname was Bud. Henry and Cumi weren't bad parents by any stretch, considering early 20th century farm life. It possibly could have been a lot worse. None of the kids seemed to have any interest in being farmers, in between helping their dad with the farm, kids would go to school. Kumi was a force when it came to the kids being educated. In addition to her encouragement that they go on a learning, Kumi would teach them the Bible. You see, like many who grew up in the late 1800s, Kumi had a staunch belief in Jesus, the particular fundamentalist breed of Jesus that saw salvation through fear rather than forgiveness. Poverty, in her eyes, was a blessing from Christ, and she would commonly comment to the children that Jesus loved men in rags more than men in fancy robes. Now, in line with this, they weren't above a quick whack. The rod was used in the kids' punishment if they were ever caught slipping. 
It didn't seem as though she was particularly harsh, though, as all the kids had a fairly close relationship with her throughout their lives. Buck and Bud, however, would push their limits. Clyde himself probably would have been fine if his older brother hadn't dabbled in crime, since Clyde idolised Buck. Buck would ditch school frequently, and by the third grade, he had dropped out altogether. It wasn't that he initially turned to crime. In fact, the kid was always in good spirits. He just enjoyed fishing and hunting more than school. He did have a bit of a temper, but it cooled rather quickly. He filled his spare time with a prized cock that he had stolen that he would fight for spare change. Clyde, seven years younger than Buck, didn't like school any less than Buck did, but he stuck with it. He also enjoyed attending church with the family, even going so far as to be baptised when he was 14 at Eureka Baptist Church, standing before the congregation and denouncing himself as a sinner and accepting Jesus for fear of being damned for all eternity. Clyde's controlling streak began early in his life. Whenever he played with his siblings, he was always in charge, organising who would be the robber and who would be the cops. Clyde always named himself the outlaw, often Jesse James or Billy the Kid, those on his side were regulated to members of his gang. When he wasn't playing, he was helping out on the farm with hunting. Clyde, it turns out, was a really good shot and would take the family's guns out to shoot for target practice. He didn't like shooting animals though, just targets, and would only hunt so that they could eat. As mentioned, Buck's temper was bright and quick. Clyde's temper, however, was slow and simmering. He wasn't so quick to act, but he remembered every slight against him, and he didn't forget anything. He wasn't one to act, preferring talking to fighting. When fighting was inevitable, though, he would fight in an uncontrolled rage. He would use fists, sticks, rocks, whatever was in reach, and whatever made the most damage, and he would not stop until he was done. If he did lose a fight, he would stew on it, and strike back, usually when they weren't expecting. Outside of this, Clyde was a good musician. He hoped one day to form a band. This love of music would stick with him later in life, a saxophone that he always carried with him on the road. During his childhood, he would also visit Uncle Frank Barrow for part of the year, each year. Much like home, he was expected to work and go to school. These retreats would take the strain off the family at the later stage when the depression hit and the family struggled to find money for food. Speaking of which, let's talk about some cotton. Now, this isn't an economy podcast, so let's blast past this. Europe couldn't farm cotton due to the war, so the states were able to sell, sell, sell. This crashed when the war ended and Europe resumed their farming. During Armistice Day, Cotton sold for 40 cents, reaching as high as 60 cents at some points. The war ended and the price dropped to 8 cents, less than it had been prior to the war. Farms began to foreclose all around the countryside. The barrows toughed it out. Henry took up another job to supplement his income, but the farm still needed tendon, and with Henry gone, the responsibility fell to the kids. Some of them had already begun to leave the family by this point. Henry and Cumi made do, struggling with the land and their remaining three kids. 1920 would devastate the family. Not only did the cotton prices fall to practically nothing, there was a plague of weevils, 
and then cotton rot swept through Texas. The Barrows decided, before they hit rock bottom and lost everything, that they would pack up what they had and move. They packed up their horse and wagon and headed for the city. Clyde was 12 years old. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. We're going to talk about Dallas for a moment. Dallas took 80 years to hit a population of 150,000. Within the next five, it exploded by another 100,000. Dallas was trying for an industrialized city, so required many poorly educated laborers for low-pay, low-skill, menial jobs in factories and sweeping streets. Of course, they couldn't have these poor people mingling in the city large, so civic leaders of Dallas met to figure out a way to have their cake and eat it too. So instead of assimilating the population, they opened up an area west of the city to the poor folk, free for them to squat at at their leisure. Two communities sprung up in this marsh. Cement City, named for manufacturing jobs that spewed out pollutants into the air, and West Dallas. West Dallas was more or less purely residential, at least in the sense that people live there. It was a squatter's town, mostly filled with tents and maybe a rugged shanty that had been banged up in the hopes of providing some protection from the elements and keeping out the bugs and littered streets. Dozens of deaths annually from TB and pneumonia were caused by the poor conditions. The Barrows went to West Dallas and made camp next to the railway tracks. They didn't actually have tents. The families slept beneath the wagon, their horses tied alongside them. Money, as you could imagine, was extremely tight, and the family depended on the Salvation Army for food handouts. Henry made a job for himself, gathering scrap metal and trading it in for mere pennies. The Barrows managed to get themselves a tent and would save their money up. Every leftover penny went towards buying wooden nails. Slowly, ever so slowly, Henry erected a tiny shed for his family. While Henry went about everything legitimately, fellow residents of West Dallas didn't exactly follow suit. It was a lawless place. Most people supplemented their means with stealing. Not from other people in West Dallas. I mean, they virtually had nothing to begin with anyway but over the river in the actual city. Despite the fact that West Dallas was technically out of the jurisdiction of Dallas police, that did not stop them from raiding the grounds and arresting whoever they wanted on suspicions of whatever they wanted. Cumie was glad that Clyde was out at Frank's farm away from the influence of West Dallas. Buck, however, had no such luck. He was swimming in it. Over the river, he stole and sold chickens. Now, this didn't provide much money, so he followed his father in the scrap game. Kumi wasn't happy when he was caught in a stolen car hauling stolen brass. Buck was in and out of the Barrow's house, and he had a couple of failed marriages over this time. It was around this time that Clyde was back in West Dallas, and he, along with Henry and Marie, fell ill for quite a while. Clyde would eventually go back to Frank's farm again, but this time for the last time. Upon returning, he followed Buck around, traveling over the river regularly. When Clyde turned 15, he was spending almost all his time in Dallas. 
Over in Dallas, Clyde would often go to the pictures. Much different to the cinemas now, which show maybe three different movies across a dozen shows, three times a week in a row, these cinemas in Dallas had as many as 12 movies to choose from, and would change out four times a week. It was 1925 and silent movies were giving away to talkies. Movie stars permeated pop culture. Fair Park constantly ran with carnival rides and exhibit buildings. There was even an ice skating rink. Clyde still wanted to be a musician, and when he got his hands on a guitar, he would sometimes sit around the camps of West Dallas and play and sing. Cumey still insisted on his schooling. Though being enrolled in Sydney Laner High in Dallas, he and Elsie never really made it to school. They would often go to the park or downtown to window shop. In the windows, he saw the latest fashion that stars wore in movies, and the women around him wore the latest dresses. This obsession with fine suits would extend out to his own wardrobe. If he wanted this, he would need money, and to get money, he needed himself a job. At 16, he would drop out of school for good and start looking for a job. There was a bit of a problem, though. You see, in conjunction with Clyde's controlling side, he really didn't like people telling him what to do. But he would swallow his pride to obtain a paycheck. And so the first was brown cracker and candy, where he worked for a dollar a day. It wasn't enough for the stuff he wanted. The suits themselves were 20 bucks or more, and his saxophone was at least twice as much. He envied the leads in movies, living the life that he could never have. He moved on to Procter & Gamble, where he made $18 for a 60-hour work week. He moved jobs then again, and at one point he tried to join the Navy and got a USN tattoo in anticipation. He was turned down on account of his illness mentioned earlier. Not able to make much legitimately, he turned to illegitimate means. Most West Dallas kids were petty thieves, and Clyde went the same route. Like Buck, he started with chickens. They were easy, and if you couldn't sell them, then you could get rid of the evidence and have a full meal all at once. When Clyde was 16, he was picked up by Dallas police for stealing chickens. He was let off with a stern talking to, since they really didn't have the cells to hold all the petty theft that they picked up. And it was around this time that Clyde got his first girlfriend, Eleanor B. Williams. Clyde got EBW tattooed on his arm and gave her a mirror that he made at work with her initials engraved on the back. Weeks later, they had a fight, and on the way to make up, he got caught in with the rental car company, who sent a sheriff out to find the kid. Now, Clyde could have talked to the cops and straightened everything out with the simple misunderstanding. He had hired a car, didn't realize that it was not meant to go out of the city. My mistake, first time. Get over and done with. He thought the better idea, though, was to hide in the attic and let the police take the car. Clyde ditched immediately, hitching his way back to Dallas, leaving Eleanor and his mother, who'd come along, to figure out their own way home. Mark Clyde's first mugshot. December 9, Clyde was arrested by Dallas police for car theft. The rental agency had filed an official complaint. Prisoner 6048 didn't end up seeing prison. The company didn't press charges, but this meant that Clyde had an official arrest record. Despite the fact that he was now officially 
a criminal, Eleanor took Clyde back and, com- and he convinced her to run away with him and elope. Partway through their retreat, she suspected that Clyde had no real intention of marrying her and went home. Clyde turned up in town a few days later. That was the last time he saw Eleanor. Three weeks after the car ordeal, Clyde was picked up again, this time with Buck. You see, they picked up a truck full of turkeys. Buck offered to take full responsibility if they let Clyde go. Buck was in jail for a week, and Clyde avoided any prison time. Sometime late 1927 or early 1928, Clyde left his current job for Barma Pie Company, then again to A&K Top Paint Shop. His job changes could now be attributed to his frequent time off. You see, now that he had a few thefts under his belt, the police would routinely pick him up and hold him for questioning about any local crime. When nothing stuck, they would kick him out, leaving him to find his own way back to his job. During this time, he also added some names, uh, Annie and Grace, to his list of tattoos. He also got himself a shiny new saxophone. Now, chickens don't bring in that kind of dough, but cars do. A little automobile history here for you. By 1912, most cars had moved from hand-cranked to electric starts. Drivers had a habit of leaving keys in the ignition. Even without the keys, it was especially easy to hotwire cars to get them started. In 1927, a basic Model T cost $260. If Clyde stole one, it was in good condition. He could take it over state lines to Oklahoma and sell it to a fence there for 100 bucks or more. Because the Dallas police had their eyes on him, Clyde would take trips out of town and conduct business there. On February 22, 1928, he was held for investigation in Fort Worth. There wasn't enough evidence to keep him, so they let him go. Buck had also been stealing cars. He was caught on August 13 in San Antonio, and the trial was set for January 1929. Henry, Cumey, and a handful of family friends hitched their wagon and went straight to the trial. The judge threw out the case since the family pleaded so much, and really no car was stolen, so no harm, no foul. Upon returning to West Dallas, they found Clyde had fallen in with Frank Claus. Frank was an unsavory man. You see, he was a second-story man, someone who broke into houses and businesses. The fall of 1929, Frank, Clyde, and Buck were picked up on suspicion of planning to burglarize. Though they couldn't prove anything, the police were sure all three were guilty of this, as well as several other robberies. Henry Barrow would get a little bit of a break in the same fall of 1929. While he was out on his usual scrap scrap metal run, a car careened out of control and took out his horse. The lawsuit was threatened, and the driver settled for $600 or $800. With some of the money, Henry bought himself a Model T truck. The next month saw Buck with a new girlfriend, Blanche Caldwell Calloway, a daughter of a preacher. Take note of that name, it'll be important later. He failed to talk to her about his life of crime. December 6th, Buck and Sidney Moore were indicted for robbery they pulled. 
along with Clyde on November 29. They drove a stolen Buick before stealing a Ford and breaking into a house. They stole some jewelry from there and then stopped at a closed garage on the way home. They broke in and found a safe that they couldn't crack at the time. So, brilliant idea, we're going to load it up in the Ford and were spotted by a patrol car. Clyde floored it and the car turned, smashing the axle into a ditch. Buck and Moore took off on foot and the police began to shoot. Buck was hitting both his legs. He was fine, but he was caught. Moore surrendered. Clyde hid under a nearby house and hitched back to Dallas after the police were gone. There was only $30 in the safe. On December 17, Buck was sentenced to four years in state prison at Huntsville. Without Buck, Clyde went back to hanging out with his old friends. Clarence Clay invited him to a party on January 5th, 1930. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie Parker was the daughter of Charles Parker, Rick Mason, and Emma Parker. She was born October 1st, 1910, in a small West Texas town. From a young age, Bonnie was center stage. Loved the attention and would do anything, just about anything, to get it. For example, when she was three, she was chosen to sing a hymn solo to the congregation. Bonnie stood on stage and began to sing He's a Devil in His Own Hometown, a honky-tonk tune that she was quite fond of. It shocked the crowd, and Bonnie reveled in the extra attention. She also took to swearing at a young age. Nothing too major, but Don, by 1910 standards, was pretty out there. Charles tried reprimanding her, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. In December 1914, Charles passed away. Emma packed up three kids and moved in with her parents in Cement City, across the river from Dallas. Emma found work as a seamstress and earned about $9.5 a week. While she was working, her mother took care of Bonnie, who was an absolute terror. Nothing bad, but she did start some small fires. Not actually lighting anything on worth on fire, just sticks and stuff. And she did raid her grandfather's wine. Bonnie more or less just did what she wanted and got away with it. When she began school, she often did outlandish things to get herself to stand out from the crowd. She had a hot temper and was known to duke it out with girls and boys over pretty much anything, stolen pencils or perceived snubs. She caught on early that by being someone's girlfriend, that meant gifts, lollies and gum. When the Parker girls were sent out fishing on the weekends, Bonnie would belt out a tune at the top of her lungs much to the irritation of her sister, Billie Jean. Bonnie would tell her, When I'm out on Broadway and I have my name in lights, you'll be sorry you treated me this way. When she did hit the teenage years, she became obsessed with clothes and makeup. Films and magazines pushed the flapper look. When she was 15, she got together enough money to have a proper photo shoot at the studio and posed for, quote, glamour shots. She always held hope that she would meet a Hollywood producer scouting for talent. Otherwise, she would have to resign herself to working at factories or as a waitress or clerk. There was another option to her, though, a shortcut of sorts. 
She could marry someone with money. If she could find the right man, then she could have both the lavish lifestyle and the happily ever after romance that was found in the movies that she wished to start in. She met Roy Thornton in high school. He was two years older, good looking, and had money. As far as she was concerned, he was perfect and would accept no criticism of him. She got herself a tattoo on her thigh, Bonnie and Roy in hearts connected by arrows. Emma did not approve, and two weeks before turning 16, she married Roy Thornton. August 1927, Roy disappeared for 10 days. No word about where he was or what he was doing. When he got back, he offered no explanation and immediately sank into drinking heavily. And on at least one occasion, he hit Bonnie. He was gone again in October for 19 days. Emma told Bonnie she should just get a divorce. Bonnie didn't think that was necessary. When Roy left again in December, however, Bonnie became convinced that he was seeing another woman. So she hunted down that woman that she suspected, Reba Griffin. Roy wasn't with her, but resigned herself to the fact that Roy was no longer in love with her. Now, in a scene of things to come, she was quite melodramatic when it came to Roy, often saying, quote, If I knew for sure he didn't care for me, I'd cut my throat and say, Here goes nothing. Maybe he does, though. I still have hopes. She began working as a waitress, now that she was resigned that Roy was gone. Her weekly wage was three or four dollars, but the bulk of her take had to come from tips. Jeff Gwynn does a little bit of speculation here, but it's his assumption that Bonnie could have brought in more income through prostitution. It wasn't necessarily unusual that girls from the slums would often turn tricks to bring in extra money, and Bonnie was known to dress above her pay grade. Personally, I don't think whether she sold her body or not would really affect her character later in life, so this is kind of a moot point. Either way, Roy returned to town in January 1929, and Bonnie told him that they were through. A few months later, he was picked up for robbery and sentenced to five years in prison. She never saw him again, but she never quite got around to getting that divorce either. After that, Bonnie changed jobs, waitressing at a restaurant called Marco's now. It was located near a courthouse and post office, so the tips were pretty much better. One of Bonnie's regulars, Ted Hinton, uh, note that name, it'll be important later, enjoyed their banter when he frequented the restaurant. The manager of Marco's complained often about Bonnie's kindness. She would give away ingredients to those who couldn't afford their meals. She ignored the warnings, but was never really fired for it. After the market crash, Marcos held out for a little over a month before it was forced to close down. Emma managed to keep her job, but money in the household was tight, and Bonnie was miserable. Her temporary babysitting job gave her little money. She was broke, basically unemployed, and she didn't have a husband. Bonnie's brother, Buster, had a party at his house in January 1930. He and his wife, Clarence Clay's sister, invited her over. Bonnie saw Clyde, and the two instantly clicked. From that point on, they were inseparable. He had everything that she wanted. He was well-dressed, he drove a fancy car, and he was willing to take charge. 
Bonnie was eager to become rich and famous like Clyde, and she clinged to him all evening, which bolstered Clyde's self-confidence. Early February, Clyde visited the pocket of residence to tell Bonnie that he was leaving town the next day, probably to get some quick cash. Emma suggested that he spend the night after his visit extended on and on and on. Clyde crashed on the couch. The following morning, the Dallas police rolled up at the Parker house, looking for Clyde Barrow to arrest him. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde expected the arrest was the same as all the others, a bit of time answering questions and then out within a couple of days. Bonnie was hysterical as they took Clyde away, begging the cops not to take her love away. The Dallas police were just making the initial arrest. Jurisdictions had to work out where he would be transferred to yet. Bonnie fell into the theatrics of it all. A lover in jail, she spent her time crying about heartbreak. In his temporary holding, Bonnie would visit Clyde. When she was at home, she wrote long rambling letters pledging eternal love and predicting a long and happy future. A letter dated 14th of February 1930 mentioned Clyde's old partner Frank Claus. She then wrote in the letter, quote, I'm so lonesome for you, dearest. Don't you wish we could be together? Sugar, I never knew I really cared for you until you got in jail. And honey, if you get out, okay, please don't ever do anything to get locked up again. And finished the letter by letting him know that she had, quote, went out to your mother's today. Clyde had tried his damnedest to keep his new girlfriend from his family. Bonnie loved his family from the moment that they met. Kumi didn't reciprocate the feelings. She later wrote her first impressions of the girl as someone who, quote, just cared for a good time and believed in spending money as she went. Clyde was transferred to Denton Jail for attempted robbery from the November 29th job. Clyde, if anything, is lucky. The grand jury ruled that there wasn't enough evidence. His luck then ran out. McLennan County lawmen were waiting outside to take him to Waco. Seven different charges were against him, from car theft to possession of stolen goods. Bonnie followed as Clyde went south. The Waco jury had a lot more testimony to account for. March 3rd, 1930, the grand jury returned seven counts against Clyde Barrow. Bonnie sent a note to him saying, quote, If you go down, I'll be good when you're gone and be waiting, waiting, waiting for you. Clyde stood before Richard Munro on March 5th and pleaded guilty in the hopes that he would receive a light sentencing. He was right. He was given seven two-year concurrent terms. It would soon be reduced. While a two-year sentence might be considered an easy time for most, for Clyde it would prove difficult. Again, he had a problem with control, and he had to give up all control when in prison. Clyde would have to break out, or at least that's what he was determined to do, and he would have to do it before the one-way wagon arrived, and he needed an accomplice on the outside. March 11, Bonnie visited like normal. Clyde whispered plans of a breakout and her role in it. 
William Turner lived with his parents in a house in East Waco, in which was hidden a revolver. Clyde wanted Bonnie to get the revolver and smuggle it back to him later that evening. To Bonnie, this was a chance to act like the lead lady in an action movie. If she wasn't caught and Clyde got away, they would have a life on the run, assuming new identities and racing from the law. Bonnie retrieved the gun just fine, and returned, hidden under a dress which could only be revealed if she was frisked, and the guards never done that before. The guard on duty kind of really didn't want her let her back in since she'd already visited that day. Bonnie convinced him to let her have another quick visit. There was little supervision in this one, like the others. Clyde wasn't considered a flight risk. Bonnie successfully passed him the gun, and he told her to leave quickly. He would come for her as soon as he could. Clyde and William Turner involved another prisoner in their plan, Emery Abernathy. 7.30 in the evening, Irving Stanford and Hoss Jones were on duty. Turner called out that he was sick and asked if he could have some milk to settle his stomach. The jailer, not wanting to clean up vomit, gave him some. And when he went to open the door to retrieve the bottle, Abernathy flashed the gun and ordered the jailer to hand over his keys. He promised that if anyone made a sound, they'd be back to kill them all. They locked the jailer in one of the cells and hurried downstairs. Jones, who was at his desk filling out paperwork, was taken by surprise. Clyde, Turner, and Abernathy chose not to use the gun again, telling Jones to stay quiet at his desk for five minutes, and then they disappeared through the jail door and out onto the street. Of course, the moment that they were around the corner and out of sight, Jones was up and running after them. They didn't take his sidearm, so when he spotted them, he just started firing. All his shots missed, however. Abernathy did turn around and fire back, but he's well out of range, and his shots just went wild. Clyde spotted a car and jumped in. Hot-wiring it, the three got away, swapping out their car just outside town with another stolen car. Waco authorities gave out a bulletin that the thieves were driving a car, but gave the description of the first car. It would give the prisoners a 12-hour head start, switching cars constantly on the run. Clyde, during this time, was too busy to send word to Bonnie. Trio leaves trail of stolen cars. Headlines the following days read, The paper mentioned that the fugitives had somehow gotten a gun smuggled into their cells, but there wasn't anything linking Bonnie to this. Clyde didn't come back to Bonnie in Waco, so she left to wait for him back at home in Dallas. She was spooked by two strangers who walked up to the door and knocked on it. She didn't answer. She was convinced that the police knew and were watching her every move. Another day passed and there was no word from Clyde. About four or five days after the breakout, Clyde sent word via telegram from a town in Illinois. The trio had spent their time darting between towns in Ohio. On March 17, they broke into a dry cleaners and then into the railroad office nearby. Their take was about 60 bucks. Taking off from there, they stuck to primarily dirt roads. They got lost. The following morning, after camping out in the car that night, they made it back to town. 
Harry Richardson and George Woody, two members of the Middleton force, saw a car with a license plate from the Bulletin. They jumped in their car and pursued. Woody began shooting, and the three abandoned their car and ran on foot. Richardson turned the corner and in the alley and was arrested. Abernathy was picked up an hour later. Clyde, as he did last time, hid under a house and emerged later that afternoon and stole another car. Tom Carr Moody spotted him and gave chase. Clyde turned to a dead-end street, tossed his gun, and was taken into custody. He told police that his name was Robert Thomas and that he was 17 and from Indianapolis. Turner and Abernathy already admitted that they were escaped convicts, and in an effort to keep Clyde out, they told him that he was just some hitchhiker that they had picked up. The Middleton cops received a wire from Waco with the descriptions of the prisoners. Friday, March 21st, Sheriff Leslie Stegall arrived in town and took custody of the three prisoners. Back in Waco, Clyde Turner and Abernathy were thrown into maximum security cells on the third floor. The new judge assigned to the case gave him his full 14 years in prison. Upon moving to state prison, Clyde claimed that Bonnie Parker was his wife, which would allow him to exchange mail with her. She had gone to Waco to see him before he was taken off. They must have argued during that visit, since Clyde sent her a letter on April 19, apologizing for being jealous. Quote, Just be a good little girl and always love me. Summer 1930, he was shipped back and forth across the state to face all his charges. One charge was for a murder that he most certainly did not commit, and the grand jury threw it out with insufficient evidence. Clyde hoped, being a first-timer, that he would be sent to Huntsville Prison, where a young first-timer could get a relatively light detail. The most dangerous men were shipped out to the prison's Eastham Cotton Farm. Guess which one Clyde had to go to. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Once at Eastham Farm, Clyde was across from Ralph Foltz, another name to take note of. They were assigned to camp to in the fields of cotton and corn. Across the two farms, there were between 400 and 500 convicts. It was an isolated land that made it difficult for men to escape. If they happened to make it across the river that was on the boundary of one side, the farm had bloodhounds that were renowned for their ability to track. The year prior to Clyde arriving, there had been 302 escapees. 298 had been recaptured. It was an 8 to 1 ratio for the prisoners to guards. Prisoners were appointed custodians over their section of bunks to help keep the order. The work was difficult. 10-hour workdays, and they got half an hour off on Saturday for bathing. Clyde was assigned to the wood pile. Clyde would bite back when the guards talked to him, scowling whenever he received orders. He was beaten frequently. Foltz was suspected of attempting another escape, so anyone talking to him was suspect by association. Other convicts avoided Foltz. Him and Clyde kept mostly to themselves. In late 1930, an inmate suspected of being an informer suffered a near-fatal accident as a chopped tree fell on him. It was suspected that Clyde and Foltz cut it on purpose. A week after this event, guards led Clyde away. Foltz returned to the camp, 
and Clyde's possessions were gone from beside his bunk. Clyde was transferred to Camp 1. Now we're going to introduce another person, Ed Crowder. Crowder was the building's tender. He stood out from the crowd as a fearsome man, standing over six feet tall. He was intimidating, and inmates under his care made no trouble. Because of this, the guards didn't care what the hell went on in there. And due to the fact that he had 99 years to serve with no parole, he was particularly brutal. Clyde was an easy target for him. He would frequently beat Clyde before raping him. This went on for a full year. Aubrey Scaly, another building tender in Camp 1, hated Crowder almost as much as Clyde did. When they had a moment alone, Scaly told Clyde that if he could find a way to kill Crowder, Scaly would claim full responsibility. It was a risk on Clyde's part. He had to be sure to finish Crowder off. October 29... 1931. Clyde entered the dormitory with a length of lead pipe hidden down his trouser leg. He walked to the shower and toilet area out the back. Crowder followed. When he was in range, Clyde pulled out the pipe and brought it down straight onto Crowder's skull, splitting it and killing him. Scaly, lurking nearby, rushed in and shivved the body to be sure he was dead. True to his word, Scaly told the guards that he had killed Crowder. Clyde had to get out of the prison, and he took drastic measures. On January 27, 1932, Clyde was admitted to the hospital after cutting off his big toe and part of his second toe. This would have an effect on his balance, and he would never walk normally again. Turns out, this would be entirely unnecessary. February 2nd, when he was in rehab learning to walk again, he was paroled. When he arrived home on crutches, he told his family how bad it was, and that he would die before he let the laws send him back there again. Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. During the last few months of 1930, Bonnie's letters had fallen in frequency until they weren't arriving at all. She had just turned 20, and it wasn't especially exciting being the girlfriend of a convict currently serving a sentence. Clyde understood what no letter meant. He didn't intend to leave it at that, though. He would wait until he got out, and then he would win her back. Clyde was right when it came to Bonnie. She had a new job and a new boyfriend. Unlike her estranged husband, when Clyde rocked up at her door, she ran up to him and embraced him. Her current boyfriend, presumably, sat very awkwardly in the living room. Clyde immediately jumped into job hunting. He found it rather difficult. The Great Depression was really ramping up at this point. An average of 20,000 farms across America failed each month. Those people needed jobs as well. Dallas police resumed picking him up and questioning him. He swore that, after the hell that was prison, he was trying to go straight. They didn't believe him. He was offered a job out in Massachusetts, but Clyde was reluctant to go on account of Bonnie's unfaithfulness when he was in prison. Emma told Clyde that it would be absolutely fine with her 
If, after getting established out there, Bonnie moved out there too. Clyde went out there and hated it. Two weeks after he left, he was back in West Dallas. By this time, Foltz was out. Foltz was not about to go straight. He would be involved in a prison breakout in January 1932. Raymond Hamilton claimed that he was an old friend of Clyde's and convinced Foltz to smuggle in some hacksaw blades. Hamilton broke out on 27th of January. The two of them chilled at Barrow's service station, waiting for Clyde. Clyde returned from work and announced to his family that he had lost another job. He then said to his family and everyone listening, he was never going back to work again. At least not legitimately. Crime was going to be his occupation. Which is kind of funny because it's still work, just a different type of work. And as we'll see, it didn't exactly bring in the dollars consistently. Bonnie told her mother that she had found a job selling cosmetics in Houston. In reality, she had actually accepted an invitation from Clyde to be part of his gang, along with Foltz and Hamilton. And that is where we will end part one of Bonnie and Clyde. We'll pick up next episode with a hell of a lot more crime. This is when they start to get into the nitty and gritty of it. This is the official beginning of the Barrow Gang. But until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>